0: I want to share with all our listeners that we've launched a Facebook group. You can find us on Facebook under Deep Dish on Global Affairs. This is a public group, so please join in. We'll post new episodes and relevant articles, but it also can be a place for you to ask questions, give feedback, and suggest guests and topics to us. So please check us out, Facebook group, Deep Dish on Global Affairs.
1: We have been trying to turn command over to South Korea for the last 15 years. And every time we get close, the Korean military says, we just don't think we're ready yet.
2: But if you look at Southeast Asia, there's so much going on there. Um, there's so much that we can do and should be doing, but instead we get distracted by by the big security, and perhaps rightfully so for right now. When it comes to
3: OBOR and China's major uh, initiatives, uh, the U.S. cannot compete by just complaining.
0: This is Deep Dish on Global Affairs, going beyond the headlines on critical global issues. I'm Brian Hansen, and today we're discussing President Trump's upcoming trip to Asia. Here joining me is Damian Ma, who is a fellow and associate director at the Paulson Institute's think tank at the University of Chicago. Welcome, Damian. It's good to have you. Good to be here. Also with us is Cecile Shea, she's Non-Resident Senior Fellow on Security and Diplomacy at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Welcome, Cecile.
1: Hi, Brian. Thanks.
0: And rounding us out is Carl Friedhoff, Fellow for Public Opinion and Foreign Policy at the Council. Welcome to you, Carl. Thank you. Thank you all three for being here, because as you know, the the Trump trip covers a lot of ground. He'll be in Japan, South Korea, China, Vietnam, the Philippines, um, even Hawaii for a U.S.-specific location. And this trip is taking place at a particularly dynamic moment in China. We all know about the crisis over North Korea's uh, nuclear program and ballistic missile program. But if we look at China, uh, Trump is visiting right after a party congress in which President Xi established his his real dominance of the political system, having political power arguably hasn't been seen in decades in China. Japan, we've just had a big electoral win for Prime Minister Abe, where uh, he actually achieved a super majority in Parliament, so is able to contemplate constitutional change. South Korea, in addition to the North Korea uh, tension, um, South Korea has agreed to renegotiate a trade agreement uh, with the United States. In the Philippines, of course, we've got a very controversial President uh, Duterte, who has been condemned for for human rights violations, including thousands of extrajudicial Uh, deaths, and in the midst of the trip is the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit. So there's a ton going on in the region, and it's a very packed schedule. To start uh, this discussion off, I'd like to briefly just go around to ask each of you, what for you do you see is the most important issue in the part of the world that you're paying attention to in the summit? What's the most important issue uh, in play? for this summit and then we'll dive in and talk about them in more detail. Damien, do you mind kicking us
3: off? I don't mind at all. I would say from the White House's perspective, the uh, the, the most important issue uh, for President Trump is clearly how to deal with uh, North Korea and the Korean Peninsula. Uh, I would actually uh, disagree with that from, f- from, from China's perspective, uh, in part because I don't think there's a good solution. Uh, I actually think some of the structural economic issues uh, between our two countries uh, is equally important, uh, if not more so than the North Korea- situation in part because I think there are actually some potential solutions coming out of the economic side.
2: Terrific. Carl. So as Damian mentioned, right, uh, everyone's going to be talking about North Korea. That's probably issues number one, two and three. And from the South Korean perspective, that's going to be very important as well. I don't think South Korea expects that there's going to be some grand solution to this. But what will be most important is to try to get this relationship between President Moon and President Trump into a better atmosphere. There's been kind of Some talk that the relationship isn't where it needs to be. Uh, President Trump has supposedly said some bad things about South Korea, and it's not playing well in the South Korean public. Also, as you mentioned in the intro, this trade issue, uh, the President Trump has threatened to withdraw from, from the core SFTA, now they're, they're going to renegotiate it. So I think doing both of those things, trying to get a better relationship between President Moon and and President Trump and also making sure that there's going to be progress on this trade issue and that he handles it in the right right way, not by coercively telling them that you better renegotiate or else, but by trying to be a better partner and going about it hopefully uh, a little bit more under the radar.
0: Terrific. And Cecile, what have you got at the list at the top?
1: Well, unlike President Moon, um, Prime Minister Abe is really the envy of the leaders of the democratic world. because. Prime Minister Abe invested early in his relationship with President Trump. President Trump clearly likes Prime Minister Abe, enjoys spending time with him, and the Japanese have planned a brilliant visit for President Trump that, among other things, includes a very long golf game between the Prime Minister and the President. Prime Minister Abe really has two discrete goals for this visit. The first is really an existential one, and it has to do with North Korea, and he is facing a contradictory challenge with President Trump. On the one hand, he has to discourage President Trump from taking preemptive action in North Korea. Any preemptive military action in North Korea would be disastrous for Japan. North Korea's missiles can't reach the U.S. right now. They can reach Japan. But an even bigger risk is sabotage, both sabotage from submarines or other vessels coming from North Korea, but also sleeper agents inside Japan. So I think that the Prime Minister's number one message is, please, no preemptive strike. But his number two message is, and oh, by the way, don't give away too much if you are gonna negotiate with North Korea. Because there are people around President Trump who are saying, well, just tell the North Koreans that if they stop their intercontinental ballistic missile program, that you'll let them keep doing whatever else they wanna do. Well, that would be great for the US because there wouldn't be missiles that could reach the US. But North Korea would be able to continue working on its missile programs that can reach Japan. And the second issue beyond North Korea that Prime Minister Abe is going to face not only during the summit but also in APEC the following week is the issue of trade. The U.S. has pulled out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Prime Minister Abe has now taken the leadership on the remaining 11 countries. He I think secretly is hoping that at some point in the future the U.S. will rejoin TPP and he's trying to keep it going as long as he can his challenges is that president trump has said he wants a bilateral free trade agreement with japan and japan is opposed to that they do not want more bilateral free trade agreements they want multilateral free trade agreements so how is he going to talk to the president about this issue without offending the president that's going to be his other um, big challenge on this visit
0: so let me uh, follow up with this by going to each of the places that he'll visit. Let me just do it in order. He starts off in Japan, so we're back to you, um, Cecile. Uh, You've you've laid out a little bit of of what some of the key issues are here. What would success look like for his visit in Japan, and what are the biggest dangers that exist in Japan? in that part of the meeting.
1: Well, you know, when I brief anyone who is going to Asia for a big, important meeting, especially if it's a CEO or a four-star general or whoever, I always tell them that 95% of success in Asia is just showing up. But you can't just show up. You have to show up, keep your feet flat on the floor, smile, and say nice things about the country. And if you do those things in almost any country in Asia, you will be a hit. And then your underlings can go back and get whatever it is that you need. So I think, President Trump's first challenge on this very long trip, 12 days in Asia. Remember, it's a 12-hour time difference. It's exhausting to be working in Asia. No matter how nice your plane is when you arrive, it's still exhausting traveling. He has a lot of distractions, political and otherwise, back home in the U.S. right now. So staying on an even keel and not saying anything that might be misinterpreted the wrong way or behaving in any way that might be misinterpreted the wrong way is really the most important thing that he can do. You know, 40 years ago, or maybe 50 now, Lyndon Lindenbames Johnson went to Thailand, said all of the right things, but while he was meeting with the king of Thailand, crossed his legs by putting his ankle up on his knee, pointed the bottom of his foot at the king of Thailand, and it destroyed not just the entire visit, but his entire relationship with the nation of Thailand, the kingdom of Thailand. And to this day... Thais still talk about LBJ pointing the bottom of his foot at the King of Thailand because you just can't do that in Southeast Asia. So that's an example of how optics are in some ways going to be a bigger challenge for him than content, particularly during the Japan part leg of the trip and then later on when he's in Southeast Asia.
0: And Damien, looking at this at the Japan portion of the trip uh, through the lens of uh, Chinese eyes, What are they looking for, concerned about, or hopeful for with the interaction between Trump and the Japanese?
3: Well, I was about to say that, in fact, China may actually have a slight on advantage because they can see what Abe is doing and what what Abe is going through the motions optic wise with Trump. And they can certainly tweak at the last minute if if something didn't quite work out. So from the optic standpoint, I actually think uh, the Chinese could, you know, uh, try to one up Abe, so to speak, which is not certainly par for the course when it comes to uh, a guy like Xi Jinping. I think no matter what happens, they're going to treat President Trump quite well. They're going to dine, dine, and uh, you know, feed on him, which is a, a pretty typical Chinese way of doing it. You know, banquet style, banquet diplomacy. I think the key from the optic side is you know, does he visit cultural sites like the Great Wall and the Forbidden City? What does he do there? Uh, you know, in our Twitter, social media saturated world, you can bet there's going to be a lot of memes coming coming out of those. Uh, whether it's uh, in, in Tokyo, in Beijing, or in Seoul, so uh, that's sort of the optic side, and I think. The Chinese are generally pretty good in uh, being very, well, very organized, just like the Japanese are on these special occasions. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that there's not going to be any huge screw-ups, but uh, who knows?
1: Can I ask you something? How are Chinese going to react to President Trump? Because certainly in Southeast Asia, there's a danger that his bluster and his tendency to brag is going to rub people the wrong way. Is that an issue in China?
3: I suspect not so much. There's actually a fairly—I uh, wouldn't say the majority—but there's a minor, uh, a minor kind of vocal support, uh, uh, Trump supporters in China. In part because I think the very minimal they know about him is that he's a successful businessman. You can debate about whether that's true or not, but that's that's certainly the, the perception there. They believe he's an entrepreneur, and a lot of Chinese view themselves as entrepreneur, pick themselves up, pick themselves up by the bootstrap type of people. So there's a bit of a. A connection there from the business perspective. So they just sort of think of him as a business person that became a politician. Uh, in the Chinese mindset, that's not that unusual.
0: And in terms of substantive issues in, in China, um, one of the things that's expected is that Trump will push on the Chinese in order to exert pressure on North Korea. Um, do you think that'll be successful or how will the Chinese react to that?
3: I think if Trump insists on linking sort of the economic trade issues uh, with the national security issue, uh, particularly North Korea, that's not really going to go anywhere. I don't think the I don't think Beijing's really gonna go for that And why is that? Beijing's always had a bottom line on uh, what they are able to tolerate on on the Korea issue and uh, there are just certain red lines they're just not going to be willing to cross. Uh, and threatening them with economic sanctions could uh, certainly backfire because, uh, as, we, as we all know, China now has more economic leverage than they did five or ten years
2: ago. Can I, can I ask you uh, something on this? We, we recently, there was someone, someone in town, um, someone from the Chinese government, and you, know, you go through one of these long meetings and it's, it's all kind of governments speak and nothing really happens and in the last 30 seconds is where everything is said. And th- this guy, he came out and said, you know, we, we don't want a trade war but if it happens, we're ready for it and we'll win. Is that your sense from your interactions with, with people in China that while they're certainly not asking for it, if it comes, they're, they're confident that they'll, they can carry it through to the end and, and outplay the United States? Well, I think part of it is sort of playing, playing the bluster
3: game uh, that Trump seems to want to play. So I think Chinese are willing to engage in that kind of bluster. Uh, I do think that there are a series of things that the Chinese could do, uh, and that, that could make it uh, even more difficult uh, to, to operate in China for a lot of U.S. and for multinationals in general, but in this case, specifically American businesses. Uh, so there are things they can put the squeeze on. Uh, I know with, uh, with, with South Korea, they certainly linked it to the THAAD issue, mm-hmm. uh, but you know, that's a little bit different when it comes to U.S. business interests because they're m- much wider and more diverse, so it's a little bit harder to do, but China has certain tools that they could use.
0: We've talked about the agenda from the Trump perspective. From the Chinese perspective, what are the what are the goals of President Xi for this summit?
3: I think uh, coming out of the 19th Party Congress, Xi certainly wants to appear uh, optically again as kind of an equal uh, with 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 the U.S. president. I think I think that that benefits him tremendously domestically, and I'm sure there will be a lot of kind of propaganda stuff along those lines uh leading up to the trip and and during uh, the actual visit uh i think you know now that she has more political power the question is what's he gonna do with with that power especially on the economic side uh so to bring a little bit context into this uh the key word in washington dc now is reciprocity whereas uh 10 years ago, it was currency, right? When I was in D.C., that was what anybody would talk about currency, currency manipulation, et cetera, et cetera. Now, currency is gone. It's reciprocity. And what that means is that the, the main critique uh, on Chinese economic policy is that there's been quite a bit of reforms, but, there, but there's been no opening up anymore. So it's kind of half of Deng Xiaoping's line of reform and opening up. So it's the first half without the second opening up part. So Xi, uh uh, if he were to kind of try to avoid the trade wars, to avoid uh, e- economic tension, uh, by not adding to the geopolitical stuff that's already swirling in the air, uh, he, it would, I think he would want to certainly try to f- figure out a way to show that there's more commitment to opening up sectors to U.S. businesses uh, and to establish more uh, fair competitive landscape in China. Uh, I think he needs to send a message to the U.S. business community. That's been the main critique of Chinese policy for the last five or six years, that he's willing to change a little bit and use his political power in a way that actually lays more of a solid foundation for foreign foreign businesses to operate in China.
0: And Carol and Cecile, from the perspective of the other countries in the region, when they are watching the Trump-Xi interaction, what are they going to be looking for? What are they concerned about or what would they be hopeful for?
2: I think from the point of view of the South Koreans, they're going to want to see probably some interactions that aren't going to paint South Korea into a corner, in, in a sense that you know, one of the South Korean continual worries is they're always viewed negatively, as in, a, in a essence, by, by Washington. Um, while, while DC knows where Japan is going to stand and they have a clear understanding that they're going to kind of set themselves up as a competitor or a rival to China, there's always suspicion about South Korea so they're going to look South
0: to Korea would be too close to China too close
2: to China and we've recently seen you know, right after the 19th party Congress uh, Damien mentioned this that issue now China and which is South a Korea, missile defense
0: system right installed right. by the US in right. response to the North Korean threat Right,
2: and so ongoing China opposed this uh, installation they've come out with unilateral sanctions over the past year or so and I think just this morning it was announced that everything's fine now all those sanctions are gone they're going to be best friends and so the timing is, is, is very curious. So South Korea doesn't want to see themselves put into a position where they are now kind of pushed further and further out of the game. That's always a concern for South Korea. I think the other thing they're going to be looking at is they don't want to see any further provocations, any unexpected provocations from the United States. That's uh, from what I've heard specifically why President Trump is not going to be visiting the DMZ and is instead going to be going to Camp Humphreys. That, that is a bit south of Seoul. Um, but my bigger issue on this um, while everyone's been talking about the, the trade agreement, everyone's been talking about North Korea, the issue that not many people or not enough people are talking about is the special measures agreement. That's the host nation uh, support sharing how much basically South Korea is going to pay the United States for hosting U.S. soldiers there. Which currently, has been
0: a really big issue for President Trump, right? Around the world, he has claimed mm-hmm. that our allies aren't doing enough.
2: Right. So currently, uh, South Korea's agreement has it pay about $900 million a year. It's going to be renegotiated next year And from everything that the president has said, it sounds like he's gonna take a very coercive approach to this. And if he goes off on a Twitter rant about South Korea's a beggar, South Korea needs to pay more, that's something that's really going to sow the seeds of anti-Americanism. Those seeds are already there, but perhaps I should say that that will really add water and fertilizer to them, and we'll see it grow up, and that could really derail uh, US-Korea relations.
1: But don't you think the visit to Humphreys, therefore, is brilliant, and I don't know whether it was his own own people or the Koreans who, who pushed for this. But and Humphreys addition, is, just oh, sorry, to clarify. Thank you. So um, since the end of the Korean War, uh, US forces had been based in Seoul. And there were two problems with that. One is the land is extremely valuable, and the Koreans wanted it back. And secondly, it's within artillery range of North Korea. So the South Korean government agreed to build a new state-of-the-art base south of Seoul, which is, we hope, out of artillery range. Um, and is out of Seoul. And the U.S. has been slowly turning over the base back to the Korean government over the last 10 years. They've built a huge national museum there. Um, It's really changing that part of Seoul in in great ways. And it's actually better for the U.S. military families. They're happier down in this brand new state-of-the-art military base. But the Koreans have paid for it. The Republic of Korea has paid for all or almost all of Camp Humphreys. And so it's great that President Trump is going to be there because he's a very visual person and he will be in, in, in Humphreys and he will say, oh, look, they d- did pay for something. They are paying for our troops to live here in nice housing and in decent conditions. And, and perhaps that will keep him from saying something that he shouldn't say. The same thing is true in Japan. The Japanese have over the last 30 or 40 years paid the U.S maybe hundreds of billions of dollars toward toward our own military. And so hopefully being in Japan and seeing some of those bases and having Prime Minister Abe explain to him again what Japan is paying, although Prime Minister Abe has done that in his earlier visits, which is why President Trump has not been so critical of Japan in recent days.
0: Terrific. Carl, I want to get back to Korea and the Korean portion of the visit. What other issues do you think are likely to come up and what are the most important things to go well as well as how could things turn badly for that portion of the visit?
2: Well, the way that things will turn badly is, number one, if there is some kind of Twitter explosion where he's going to continue to bait North Korea. Um, you know, the South Koreans, they have obviously live within range of artillery, rockets, everything, so they don't want to feel like they're being put into any more danger by the United States. That's already part of the narrative. Everyone's grown accustomed to the unpredictability of North Korea, and it's kind of baked into the pie, so to speak. Everyone has, has come to account for it, and suddenly you have an unpredictable United States adding into this, and that is not helping things. Um, again, as I mentioned in kind of the, the preview, the only other major things to get right are really on, on trade um, to ensure that we're not being seen as coercive, we're not demanding too much. And quite frankly, the quieter the trip to Korea is, the better. Uh, if, there, if there are major headlines coming out of that, I don't see any major headlines emanating from South Korea. That would be positive. The, the fewer, the better on that.
0: So I want to turn our attention to the um, Asian Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit uh this is one of the reasons trump will be in the region and why he'll be in the region there the united states economic relationship with asia has been a a source of uh, a lot of focus given that our centerpiece for that policy in the obama administration was the Trans-Pacific Partnership trade deal, right? And and Trump very quickly when he came into office fulfilled his campaign pledge of yanking the U.S. out of that. So there has been concern about um, what is the U.S.'s economic position in the region? Um, are we ceding to China ec- uh, economic leadership in the region? How does this APEC summit fit into those dynamics?
1: Well, I think there's three things to look for in the APEC Summit. Uh, first of all, the 11 remaining members of the Trans-Pacific Partnership will be at the summit. You should look for some level of cooperation amongst those to try to encourage other countries that had been considering joining before the U.S. pulled out to go ahead and join the TPP, on the hope that the U.S. at some point in the future will come back into the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And so you're gonna see a lot of leadership from Prime Minister Abe in particular at APEC dealing with these countries. The second thing which is going to be very interesting is remember the Canadians and the Mexicans are gonna be there. And we are deep in NAFTA negotiations or something that approach negotiations. And these negotiations are of enormous importance to the U.S. economy, not to mention to the Mexican and the Canadian economies. And so I don't know if the president is going to say anything about NAFTA while he's there with with the other two countries, but he may. So that will be something interesting to watch. But going back to your earlier question about how is the rest of the region looking at this visit, beyond economics, the most important thing to every country in the region, perhaps except for the People's Republic of China, is Is the U.S. staying in Asia? Is the U.S. a trusted partner in Asia? Are the U.S. military forces still going to be here to balance everything else and the unsettled nature of relations here? Remember that the U.S. involvement in Asia since the end of World War II has led to the largest expansion of economic, social, cultural prosperity in Asia in the history of the world. It is just impossible, it's just incredible to think about what the Republic of Korea, South Korea, was like 40 years ago compared to today. What Japan was like after the war compared to today. What Thailand was like in the 90s when I lived there compared to today. Two different countries. And this is because the U.S. has been there providing security, some kind of security and stability in the region. And, and countries want to know if the U.S. is going to continue to be there, because if not, they're going to have to look somewhere else. And the other place they're going to look is China. And the U.S. would prefer That that would be bad for the U.S., frankly. I mean, just very bluntly, it would be bad for the U.S. if the countries of Asia start to look for a, a different partner and protector in the region. I'm not sure it would be that great for China, by the way, in the long term. And I think there are plenty of Chinese officials who don't want that role themselves. So I think that that's going to be the biggest thing that people at APEC and at the subsequent meeting at ASEAN are going to be concerned about is, is the U.S. both militarily and economically and culturally and psychologically going to continue to show leadership in the Asia Pacific region.
2: But I think we also need to draw a line under what kind of leadership they're going to show. You know, For a long time, the, the, the countries in Southeast Asia, they were, they were basically limited to, we were the only viable partner. Um, and so they were willing to tolerate us talking down to them on democracy and, and human rights, but now they don't have to do that anymore. Now, quite frankly, you know, you, you look at a case like Thailand, where they haven't had the chance to have another partner, and we've been saying, well, you need to democratize, you need to democratize, all these these things. Um, since we've had our alliance with them, they've had 11 attempted or successful coups. So when you're talking democracy to them, they're like, well, wait a minute, this democracy thing hasn't really given us the stability we need. And so it makes sense for them to go back and say, well, now we have someone who's going to write us a check, and they're not going to talk to us about democratization. And so that sounds like a fairly good deal for us. And so there's going to be a game of playing China off of the U.S. And I'm not, it's not quite clear to me that all the countries in Southeast Asia will see U.S. influence there as a good thing because they are hyper tuned in to the fact that we will lecture them, but we're not going to lecture Saudi Arabia or other countries on these things. And so they feel really singled out. And I think they're somewhat resentful of that.
3: Can I piggyback on the point about credibility and U.S. leadership? And this okay. relates to both of you. I think it came out. Uh, a few weeks ago in the Washington Post, and I don't know if you guys saw the piece, I think it was, may have been a Henry Kissinger idea that uh, Tillerson picked on about a grand bargain on, on the Korean Peninsula, which would involve uh, China, uh, the United States, and obviously uh, uh, North Korea, obviously, mm-hmm. and South Korea. Uh, so uh, it would, uh, of course, part of that bargain would be the withdrawal of U.S. troops mm-hmm. from the Korean Peninsula. So. I guess the question for both of you uh, is, will we be able to change, uh, exchange credibility for stability on the Korean Peninsula, if, if that were at the stakes on the grand bargain?
1: I don't see how you can do a grand bargain and still have North Korea with its current regime um, in its current political makeup. I just don't see how a grand bargain is possible, and it just seems incredibly naive to me that secretary of state tillerson would think that it was possible frankly i do think that at some point if ever north korea implodes or there's a soft landing or there's some kind of peace on the peninsula yes i think that u.s forces will be able to come out of south korea they will not be able to come out of japan the japanese the forces in japan are completely different they deploy all over the world they stay in japan but they work other places the forces in korea stay in korea It just seems like a really naive idea at this point to think that the U.S. forces can pull out of South Korea, and one that has to scare the bejesus, frankly, out of both the Koreans and the Japanese, because they need those forces there.
2: Yeah, I I would agree with that. And we're also not seeing the South Koreans really clamor for an exit of U.S. forces. You know, support among the public is, is already quite high. And so basically, you'd be giving the North Koreans what they're seeking, a withdrawal or of an expulsion of U.S. troops. And I think that in South Korea, there would be very little trust of of North Korea to keep to that bargain. Um, So that exchange uh, sounds like a bad deal. I'll admit I, I only vaguely remember reading the piece, so I remember some of it. I guess there was a part in there about who's going to hold North Korea in check and who's going to guarantee that. But, you know admitting that I I don't remember that specific. It does sound like not a great deal, and I'm not sure that even the South Koreans would go for that. And
1: you know, there's been some wrong reporting out there, so this is a good chance to to set the record straight. There's been some reporting that South Korea would like to take command of the UN forces and command of the combined Mm -hmm. US-South Korea forces, and maybe we'll finally turn command over to these poor South Koreans. We have been trying to turn command over to South Korea for the last 15 years. And every time we get close, the Korean military says, we just don't think we're ready yet. We like having you in command. You know, we're equal partners. It's extremely integrated. It's fascinating to tour the the military headquarters there. It is an extremely integrated military setup. We have classified communications that both sides are able to use. Um, It's very advanced. The four stars speak to each other all the time, but the U.S. is still in the lead. And so any talk of you know, those poor Koreans, they can't be in the lead. That is the exact opposite of what has happened over the last 15 years.
2: Yeah, that's right. Essentially what happens is uh, the U.S. says, yeah, that's great. We want to push forward that. And the South Koreans, yes, we want to take control back. And then they're showing the bill for (laughs) what that is going to cost for to put in all the command and control and the other things that they're going to need to do. And then suddenly South Koreans start saying, well, wait a minute, you know, perhaps our money is better spent elsewhere because we already have someone doing that.
0: I want to pick up on this issue of the ba- the shifting balance of power in the region and many observe you know china's rise uh, certainly as an economic power and, and a growing military capacity but also increasing assertiveness militarily in the region um people point to China's One Belt One Road policy as using economic power in order to build um, support in the region. Cecile, you had talked about one of the things that uh, countries in this region most want to know is the U.S. position and commitment to this region. What is the state of play in terms of this struggle for power um, in the Pacific region and? What could this uh, trip do to have an effect on that?
1: I'm going to bring up two countries, um, actually two and a half countries, that are going to be involved in the ASEAN meeting in particular, and the first is Vietnam, a country with a long and very negative relationship with China, to be sure. a country that wants much closer relations with the U.S. and the U.S. is very happy to have closer relations with Vietnam. I think a lot of listeners might be surprised to know the level of U.S. military engagement in Vietnam over the last five or ten years. We have ship visits going in and out. We have troops coming um, through. And it is not beyond the realm of possibility to think that we are going to have military bases once again in Vietnam under very different circumstances than the last time that we had military bases in Vietnam. And that is a great relationship for the U.S., and it's a powerful relationship because Vietnam has one of the largest armies or militaries in the world, one of the 10 largest militaries in the world. So one of the dynamics there is, yes, you have some countries like the Philippines rethinking the balance of their relationship with the U.S. versus their relationship with China. But now you have a much stronger economically and in every other way is Vietnam, which really is going to, I think, resist having ASEAN move much closer toward China. The second country is Thailand. This is the first time that we will have a summit at this level since the king has died. And that's important because the... King was born in the United States. He was very pro-America. He spoke better English than Thai. Um, And a little tidbit, we ran the entire Vietnam War out of Thailand without a status of forces agreement. And if you know anything about political military issues, you know the status of forces agreement is absolutely central to any military operation in any country. But we were able to run that war without a status of forces agreement, because we knew we could always go to the king or go to the prime minister and work out any problems. And and we continue to do that. We have huge military exercises in Thailand. And if there's an incident, if someone gets in trouble, we just work it out informally. With the king going, we're not sure we're going to be able to maintain that kind of informal, really close relationship. prince is also... Well, We we don't know what the crown prince is going to be like, frankly. He also speaks excellent English. I've had a lot of conversations with him over the years, but we don't know as much about him. So that's the second thing that we're going to be watching in ASEAN. And then the half a thing, and this goes to what Carl was saying about human rights issues, what is the U.S. going to say or do about the situation in Burma with the Rohingya right now? What is ASEAN going to do about the situation with the Rohingya? Whatever ASEAN says publicly about, oh, we don't want to bother one of our members about a human rights issue, privately, that is not how they behave. I've been at these meetings. They have, over the years, put a lot of pressure on Aung San Suu Kyi's predecessor, on the military government to improve relations there. Now to have the situation that we have there now with hundreds of thousands of refugees, we don't even know how many people have died through what is appear- what appears to be an ethnic cleansing. It's just unacceptable to many people in the world. It's certainly unacceptable to Bangladesh, which is having to receive all of these refugees. And so what is ASEAN and what is the U.S. going to say to Burma about this situation? That's going to be a very interesting outcome from this meeting.
0: True. Other thoughts about balance of power in the region and how
2: this visit could have an impact in the trajectories? You know, the, the one thing I would say is this: in my ideal trip on on this this time around, would be something like this, where everyone is looking at the the One Belt One Road and how China is starting to exert kind of its influence that way. Um, you know, the contracts are basically saying you know, a lot of them are through loans. For Lao makes a great example where they're building a, a railway from southern China through down down through Vientiane, and it's going to cost about six billion dollars to do it. A lot of that is a big loan that is coming. Uh, from china but it's all being built with chinese workers Mm -hmm. so none of that stuff is really training lao workers to to do any of these things and one of the things i would love to see is for while the u.s doesn't do infrastructure and hasn't done that for a long time it does have a partner in japan that does that Mm -hmm. and so it could then start to build on that where they don't have to build infrastructure but they can start to bring in japan and then the U.S., and they can really capitalize on what China's already doing. So I think there's too much of a view of seeing the the OBOR, the One Belt, One Road, as as antagonistic to interest, and I think we could turn that around to make it work in our favor because eventually, if, if it follows something like the Africa example, where, yeah, China's built a lot of roads, but once they start to crumble, there's not a lot of know-how to try to, to know how to fix them, where the U.S. and Japan could follow up on that, and South Korea for that matter, and say, okay, well, you have this. Here, we're going to teach you how to maintain it. And I think there's a lot of goodwill uh, in doing that. And frankly, at a time where the U.S. is basically n- not all that interested in Southeast Asia, um, doesn't seem like it's doing a lot as compared because all the focus is on Northeast Asia with North Korea, that would be a really big opportunity for the U.S. and Japan and South Korea to come together focus on Southeast Asia, advance their political influences, but also I think they could do a lot of good in that region in terms of, you know, building more infrastructure and not only building it, but making it more useful to the people who are going to use it over a longer period of time.
1: And we may not build roads, but we build schools, for instance, which employ people and hospitals. And, And you're absolutely right, Carl. Every one of those countries would rather receive aid from the United States than China because we employ people, we don't bring in a lot of foreign workers and and they see real benefit from that. And they would also prefer to buy military equipment from the U.S. and from China because they see it as being very high quality. And so this is another reason that we need to keep our foreign aid budget at levels that it is or maybe even higher because we are trying to counterbalance aid, from, particularly from China. But also, once again, Cold War comes back to haunt us, also from Russia. So we need to be in there proving that we are still a worthy friend and ally.
0: Damian.
3: I'll just add a few very simple points. I think uh, one clearly, China uh, is looking for more str- uh, strategic space, as they say. Uh, that's not that's not a surprise. Mm-hmm. For, and what does that mean? Uh, it wants to. It doesn't want to be boxed in by a major superpower on its uh, you know eastern flank. Uh, that is uh, seems to me very normal for a for an economy that could potentially be the largest economy in the world over the next ten to fifteen years, if that's their thinking. I'm not surprised, but let's not forget Asia is also composed of a tapestry of uh, major and middle powers. Uh, J- Japan's one of them. South Korea, India, uh, China does not have the strategic condition that we do here in the Western Hemisphere for the United States. So that's point number one. Point number two, uh, in terms of balance, uh, I am never—I've never been of the view that there's sort of this Team USA versus Team PRC happening in. In much of Asia, Asia is a very complicated and diverse place. Uh, if you just take Singapore, right? Singapore uh, always tries to hedge, always tries to play plays one off the other, and I suspect many countries in, in Asia do very similar things. Uh, and which leads me to the third point: when it comes to OBOR and China's major uh, initiatives, uh, the U.S. cannot compete by just complaining. Uh, yeah, you can't you can't right. compete uh, with 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 nothing. I mean that right. that just doesn't work. Uh, so, you have to figure out, what do we offer that's tangibly different from OBOR, but also meaningfully helps uh, cu- uh, countries in, uh, you know, in Asia. When Thailand comes to us and says, well, we got OBOR here, what do you have in Washington? We can't say, well, we just hate the AIIB, that's not, that's not a solution, right? So we've got to offer something, and I'm not clear what it is in the post-TPP world, what we have to offer that can tangibly uh, counter China's OBOR, because they're putting serious money behind it.
1: One thing that we can offer the Chinese and the rest of people in the region is some kind of acknowledgement that we do want them studying in the U.S. and they will be able to get their visas and we are going to renew their visas. The visa policy of the last year has been disastrous for U.S. long-term relations in Asia, and I wish the press was more focused on this, but obviously there's a lot of things for the press to focus on lately, so this story has been kind of lost. Throughout 100 years of U.S. history, educating people from developing countries in the United States and then sending them back to those countries has been very good for the U.S. It has meant U.S. multinationals have a cadre of people to hire in those countries. It has meant U.S. ideals of democracy and liberalism get transferred to these developing countries. It has meant that our own linguistic resources are enhanced because some of these folks stay in the U.S. and make us a better country. And the fact that so many people are choosing not to study in the U.S. right now, but are studying in Great Britain or New Zealand or Australia is really a long-term disaster for U.S. national security. And I have now said it, so maybe the press will pick up on this story. Yeah. I
3: agree. I mean, I think linking national security to human capital is actually a pretty interesting way of thinking about it.
2: And I want to jump in on Damien's third point about, you know, the U.S. not offering anything. I don't think the U.S. is going to be in the position to offer anything for at least the next three years. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, this is why we have allies. And Japan and South Korea have both been talking about we want to be taken more seriously within the alliance. Now is the time to step up. We need our allies to step up and start doing something. And Japan is already active in Southeast Asia and, and Korea is there, too. But I think they can hopefully set the stage to hopefully, hopefully drag the US into that relationship as well as I, I increasingly, you know, personally, I, I don't know what everyone around the table is thinking. I'm increasingly bored by Northeast Asia. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's kind of got the sexy topic of North Korea. There's a lot, but the, the, the economies there are already developed. There's, and it's not a super diverse region of the world. But if you look at Southeast Asia, there's so much going on there. Damian was mentioning kind of the, the tapestry that, that's there, the economic development. Um, there's so much that we can do and should be doing, but instead we get distracted by, by the big security, and perhaps rightfully so for right now. But Southeast Asia, I think, is increasingly where the future is at and where we need to focus.
1: And the long-term security implications of the South China Sea and the long-term economic implications of keeping the lines of communication, which means the sea lanes through the South China Sea open for trade, are immense. The economic and security implications are beyond anything that we can really comprehend right now.
0: So I want to take us to Trump's last stop on his trip, which is the Philippines. Mm -hmm. And the Philippines is important. And and Cecile, you've raised the human rights issue. Many concerned about human rights have been very concerned about Donald Trump's praise for President uh, Duterte, who is accused of having committed mass human rights violations in his program of trying to eradicate the country of drugs and drug dealers, as how he's explained it. What should we look for in the Philippines, a very important ally of the United States, a a place of an important military, U.S. military base here? What should we be looking for in that visit?
1: Well, I mentioned the importance of getting off on the right foot with Thailand in a post-King um, Thai, Thailand, because the Thais will be there also, the Burmese will be there, Bruneians will be there, there will be a lot of different countries there. But with Duterte, honestly, I just don't know how the president is going to handle this. I think that the less time that the president is seen publicly with Duterte, the better for the president and the better for the United States. That said, I think Duterte may want to be seen with Trump, but maybe not. He has said some really nasty things about President Trump in the last six months, really nasty. So I, I'm, I'm not really sure how that whole relationship is going to play out. It's going to be very interesting, and it's going to be very interesting in part because it's going to be at the end of a very, very long trip, and the president's going to be tired, and we've seen on other trips that once he gets tired, he tends to get a little cranky. So if I were Duterte, I'd be very careful, frankly, because he could really, the president's opinion of the man could change pretty quickly.
2: Now, I tend to think that there's going to be some kind of great admiration between the two. Um, the reason I say that you talked about the human rights abuses and this ongoing battle on, on the drug war, but something that the U.S. media doesn't really mention or will, will fail to mention or perhaps just blatantly ignore is that his approval rates are really high um looking 70 to 80 percent. And that really tells you that while we may disagree with it, that there has been a lot of, there's been a major drug problem in the Philippines and no one has dealt with it. So while we've been criticizing them for all these issues, we haven't led to anything to give them, no one has really taken the mantle or taken the, the, the reins to try to alleviate that problem. And so as bad as the abuses are, the fact that the public is saying, yeah, we need this to happen and his approval rates are so high, really tells you something about what's going on there. Um, yeah, whether or not the president should be spending time with him, uh, that's a, a, a different case. But I think they'll kind of hit it off because they're both, you know, one is, is apparently a strong man and one is a strong man perhaps in waiting. You can judge whichever one of those two uh, are a which for yourselves. So I think there will be some kind of admiration and they'll hit it off and I, I expect that, that visit will actually go better than most people expect. So you've given us a, a number of things to look for
0: over the next two weeks uh, during this visit. I want to close by asking each of you to offer one piece of advice for President Trump, something he should bear in mind for this trip.
1: Show up, keep his feet flat on the floor, smile, and say nice things about his hosts. Try
3: not to make past administration mistakes where you mistake uh, PRC for the ROC, which is uh, the formal name for Taiwan that's happened, uh, unfortunately, a few times in our uh, bilateral relations. So simple details do matter. And the Chinese, uh, like elephants, have long memories.
2: Uh, my, my piece of advice would be to remember who our allies are. Uh, you're not going to an allied country to, to step on them, to coerce them, or to offend them. Um, we're going to need their help increasingly so if, if the US is going to be somewhat off the or less involved in Asia as I think you know will, will happen throughout this administration. So yeah keep keep relations good with the allies because eventually they're going to get us through this this short period of time and set the stage for ho- what is hopefully a, a broader. US. return to Asia in the near future.
0: Cecile, Damien, Carl, thanks for really a, a really terrific conversation and uh, giving all of our listeners. Uh, much to think about and um, signposts to look for uh, during Trump's visit. And thank you for tuning into this episode of Deep Dish on Global Affairs. As a reminder, the opinions you heard today are those of the people who expressed them and not the institutional positions of the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. If you like the show, please subscribe and ask someone else to subscribe as well. You can find our show under Deep Dish on Global Affairs in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Deep Dish on Global Affairs is produced by Evan Fazio. Our research and editing interns are Mike Tiernan and Bernie Fazio. I'm Brian Hanson. We'll be back soon for another slice of Deep Dish. I want to share with all our listeners that we've launched a Facebook group. You can find us on Facebook under Deep Dish on Global Affairs. This is a public group, so please join in. We'll post new episodes and relevant articles. But it also can be a place for you to ask questions, give feedback, and suggest guests and topics to us. So please check us out, Facebook group, Deep Dish on Global Affairs.